Well, in, in many ways, it's, it's already been said, but in many ways, uh, we are finishing up one chapter and beginning another uh, as a church. We have grown to what we are today, and obviously we're missing a number of people as well. Uh, and we are excited and a little saddened to be sending many of you off to plant in Regina. And uh, obviously, for those of you going to, uh, to do that, to, to form Grace Reform Baptist Church, obviously, this is a new season uh, for you. Uh, no longer do you, will you have to preface your services, but this is a ministry of Gospel Grace Fellowship in Weyburn. Uh, you are your own distinct church with all that that entails. And for those of us who remain, we obviously don't really know what is next. Again, as I said earlier, we, we didn't set out to, to, to the master plan to plant churches in Arcola and Regina. Uh, in many ways, God has just brought these opportunities into our laps, and we've tried our best to not uh, foul it up too badly. And, um, and so here we are on the, on the, the eve of, uh, of, of Regina being its own church plant. And many of us like new things. I imagine some of us do at least. We get excited about new things. Uh, we like things to change, new stuff. Uh, but others of us get nervous about it and we're not so big on change. And so what I want to do in our time now as we come to the Word is to remind us all about what this is all really about. Uh, remind us again of who it is that we serve, of who it is that possesses ultimate authority in the church, whether that church is in Weyburn, whether that church is in Regina, wherever it might be, whether that church is small or whether that church is large. These churches, they are not clubs. These churches are not social clubs where we get to simply mold them however it is that we desire. We are all, as Christ's people, all who are trusting in Christ are under his redeeming headship. He is the head of his church. And so in one sense, while there's changes before us, in another very real way, nothing changes. Christ remains our Lord. And his salvation remains our only hope. The worship of the church, the mission of the church, the tasks of the church and of individual Christians, none of this changes. So I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Matthew chapter 7. And we are going to finish up our Sermon on the Mount series today by looking at the response that the crowd gives to all that Jesus has been teaching through chapters 5 to 7 in this Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at these verses, we are reminded of the unique authority that the Lord Jesus possesses. Uh, it is something that the crowd picked up on. Uh, they caught on to this, though they didn't necessarily understand the full extent of what it is they were, they were getting a glimpse of. They were seeing the tip of an iceberg. And what I want to do today is look at these verses and then examine more of that iceberg. Uh, what, is, what is going on? What is it that they're glimpsing? What is it about the authority of Christ? I want to spend time just beholding Christ Jesus and his authority, his person and his work. And my hope is that as we do this, it will lead us into worship, that we would worship God, that we would worship Christ Jesus, that we would be filled with greater thankfulness and gratitude to him for what he has done, 
uh, into greater humility, that we would be humbled before him as we realize again just who it is that we are here to worship, that there would be any repentance needed that would occur as well, and that ultimately our strength would be, our faith would be strengthened as we consider again Christ Jesus, who is the object of our salvation. That we would be reminded ultimately, both here and in Regina, of who it is that we serve, who stands as the head of our churches. So we're going to read, and I want to read beginning in verse 13. This is that kind of final section of the Sermon on the Mount. And as I read, I want you to just imagine being there when the Sermon on the Mount was spoken. Uh, You're there, and Jesus is speaking these words. Here is this man, and just take note of the kinds of claims, the extraordinary things that he says. So let's begin in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. So back when we began the Sermon on the Mount several months ago, Uh, We noted from the end of chapter 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount begins, we noted at the end of chapter 4, verse 35, how there were great crowds that had followed Jesus around. And in response to these great crowds, Jesus went up on this mountain. Uh, We noted back then that that we see throughout the Gospels, great crowds come after Jesus. And, and for example, in John chapter 2, uh, they're, they're a fickle lot, and Jesus does not entrust himself to them, for he knows what is in a man. He's not, he's not taken in by all the hype and these crowds necessarily. And in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 4, he actually goes up on the mountain away from some of this crowd. And then we're told in chapter 5, verse 1, that he sat down. He says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so I said back when we started this that, the primary audience for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is made up of his disciples. It's made up of those who are trusting him and who are following after him. 
But there are other people in the background as well. There is this secondary audience that is made up of this crowd, that makes up this crowd. And as we've seen towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these admonitions to enter the kingdom and warnings about failure to do so. Of course, this would be especially appropriate if this secondary crowd is gathering around and it's quite a large group at this point. And then as we get to the end of the sermon, we find out these crowds are mentioned again. They have joined. As he went away and went up the mountain, his disciples came. He's teaching them, but the crowd is following as well and has been listening in. And we're told here in verse 28 of chapter 7 that the crowds, when they had heard what Jesus was teaching, it says they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed by what he said. They were astounded. Now, this word doesn't necessarily mean that they approved of what they heard. It doesn't necessarily mean they believed in him or trusted themselves to him because of what he said, or that they were uh, liking necessarily even the things that he said. Uh, There's other places where we find that people were astonished and it was not accompanied by faith. So one example, I think maybe the clearest example, is in chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 54. There we're told that the people of Nazareth, where Jesus is hometown, they were astonished, they were amazed by what Jesus was doing and what he was teaching. And yet we keep reading and we find that they were offended by him. They took offense at him. And then we have the, the line that you're probably familiar with, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So they're astonished and amazed, but they don't believe in him. They're offended and they want to throw him out. And, he, and they do not honor him at all. So to be astonished in this way, doesn't nec- they're amazed by something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they believe. And here in these verses, we are told why it is that the people were astonished. In verse 29, it says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The people are listening and they're amazed because he's speaking as one who possesses authority, which is not what they were used to from their usual teachers, the scribes. Now, I don't think this is simply saying that Jesus spoke with great conviction, whereas the scribes were kind of waffly when they were teaching. Maybe it's this and that, and Jesus is speaking with great conviction. No doubt Jesus had conviction and was speaking that way. I think it's more than that. I don't think it simply means that Jesus was an excellent and powerful teacher of the scriptures. As we might say today, if we heard a sermon by somebody and said that was a sermon with authority, we would understand it's because they're proclaiming the truth of God's word and it's the truth of God's word that's hitting us in an authoritative manner. Certainly, Jesus taught the scriptures. He taught about the law, even in the Sermon on the Mount, and he did teach the scriptures with excellence. All of that is true, but what the crowd is astonished by is that this man is teaching as one who in himself possesses authority, for he was teaching them as one who had, or as one having or possessing authority. Why is this what they're astonished at? What what are they, why is this impressed upon them? Well, as one example of his teaching as one who has authority. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus makes it clear that when it comes time for the final judgment, 
Men are going to deal with him. They are going to stand before him, and he will make the judgment. And the determinative factor in the end is going to be whether or not he knows this person in a saving manner. That's just one, obviously, incredibly significant claim that Jesus makes of authority. And so as one commentator says, he says, The Sermon on the Mount compels us in the first place to ask, Who is he who utters these words? And I think that that's what's underneath this astonishment. They're hearing these, these claims. And they think, this is different. This is different. Now, this is not like a nor- normal teacher here. This is one who's claiming to possess authority. They understand that he is making these very bold claims. And verses 28 and 29 are written in such a way that it leaves the outcome, just when you read it initially, it's a little bit ambiguous. They're astonished. And in a number of places where we see it in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels particularly, it's not always clear. Do they believe? Are they impressed? Do they like this? Or are they not like this? Sometimes it's clear they don't. Other times it's not quite as clear. We don't know how, what exactly all the individual people that were hearing this thought of. There was this general astonishment because he's teaching as one with authority. Obviously, we're not, they didn't all fall on their face before him and plead for mercy before the one you know, before whom they're eventually going to stand uh, in judgment. So they're recognizing this claim to his inherent authority. Exactly how many from this crowd believes, uh, we're, we're not told. We don't really know. And of course, this perception they have that he is claiming a unique authority is absolutely correct. And so I want to look at what is behind this, what is underneath this. What is it that they are glimpsing something of? This this claim that they're perhaps some of them even stumbling over. What is the nature of Christ's authority? How could he get up and say these kinds of incredible things and make these claims? Who is he who utters these words? And so as we consider the authority of Christ, I want to begin with Christ's authority as God. Christ's authority as God. Of course, what would not be immediately obvious to anyone who was, you know, just just hears about this teacher and goes out to the countryside and climbs up this hill and starts listening to what this man is saying, to what Jesus is saying, it would not be immediately obvious that he is the eternal Son of God in human flesh. And yet this is precisely who he is. If we want to know how it is that Jesus can come in this way and speak with claims of such inherent authority here and elsewhere, how he can say that doing his words is the same thing as doing the will of the Father, which we saw in verses 21 through 26, really, 27, how it is he can claim that the, how we respond to him determines whether we are a fool who will be destroyed and judged or whether we will be a wise person who will withstand judgment. If we want to understand how we can possibly make these claims, a big part of the explanation is that it is because the person of the Son, the eternal Son of God, who is speaking. The Son did not come into existence 
in the Bethlehem manger. He is the eternal son. And this is stated to us and presented to us in a number of ways in the scriptures. We obviously, I think, we like where it is stated quite plainly and very clearly. Those are verses we often go to and appeal to. They're very helpful. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in John chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And then in verse 38, he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. These are very clear and explicit claims of his oneness with the Father. John is quite clear throughout his gospel that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in human flesh. We also find this truth revealed to us in less clear ways, but nevertheless still revealed to us. In Matthew's Gospel, in which we find the Sermon of the Mount that we've been looking at, we are told in chapter 1, verse 20, we're told in chapter 1, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Joseph was told, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Remember, she is with child and he's going to divorce her for he thinks Naturally, she has committed adultery and the angel has to intervene and tell Joseph that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew adds that this is to fulfill Isaiah 7:14, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Quite literally, God was with us as the second person of the Trinity, assumed human flesh, being conceived of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and born of the Virgin Mary. This is Matthew's way of communicating to us that Jesus, pre, that, that the Son pre-existed even before he became flesh. Later in chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is baptized and the Father's voice comes from heaven and says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. He does not say there, you will be my Son. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you my Son. But rather, this is my Son. This is not, now I'm going to adopt you and make you a Son. This is my Son, the one in whom I am well pleased. Of course, at that same event, the Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. The Father, Son, and Spirit all there. As we think about the name, the, the, the Father, the voice from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his Son, the one in whom he is well pleased. There are other sons of God mentioned throughout the Bible. David is declared to be a son to God. God makes him a son speaks of his other sons who would come after him in 2 Samuel 7. But Jesus stands apart uniquely 
as the eternal son, the true son, as John said, the only son from the father. He is a different sort, a different class from all others. In 1 John chapter 5, and verse 20, it says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is, and the Greek text, I think, renders that even clearer. It says, this one, speaking of Jesus Christ, this one is the true God and eternal life. The Son of God is the true God. He shares in the one divine essence with the other persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Spirit, which means that all that is true of God, if you think of all what we might say are God's attributes, if you think of all of God's attributes, these are true of the Son. All that is true of God is true of the Son. He is very or truly, he is precisely and eternal God. He is of the same substance as the Father. So as we think about the eternal Son who has taken on flesh and he is preaching this Sermon on the Mount to people and he makes these claims, it is no surprise that there is a detection here, even amongst unregenerate people, that there's a claim of authority. It's no wonder. The Lord Jesus Christ has authority simply on the basis of who he is as the eternal son of God. It is critical, it is crucial for churches, for believers to not lose sight of the deity of Christ. Think about all those Think about and then dismiss them. But think about all those weak, weak pictures of Jesus that you've seen. Physical pictures of Jesus. Is that a man or a woman? Think about all those pictures you've seen of him. Think about maybe not the physical pictures, but think about the descriptions, these weak kinds of descriptions you've heard of Jesus. Jesus is not our homeboy. He is not a boyfriend. These are the kinds of descriptions and songs that are out there, that are popular within Christian circles. It is crucial for churches to not lose sight of his deity. And I don't just mean that it's important that we have it on our doctrinal statement on the website somewhere, so that if anyone questions us, we can point to it. It's important as something to remember continuously, to not ever lose sight of, because disaster will certainly ensue. Our Lord Jesus is worthy of worship. He is God. So we don't come to him flippantly. We don't come to him casually. 
We are to come to him in reverence. Again, this is one of the reasons that I think drawings and pictures of Jesus are, are not right. That they, I, I've said this before. I, I think they are violations of the second commandment. Because we, we get that image in our head and we lose sight of the fact that he's God. And so we ought to come to scripture for our depiction of who Jesus is. Not to those pictures. It does not do his person justice. Again, recalling who Jesus is will do much for our benefit to stir up our faith and our hope. Who is it that is the object of your faith that you're placing your faith and hope in? It is the eternal Son of God. So we have Christ's authority as being divine. But I also want to consider, secondly, Christ's authority as mediator. Christ's authority as mediator. The incarnation, the eternal Son, appeared in human flesh. He was not appearing with all the splendor and brightness that we would expect from the eternal Son of God. If you remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of Yahweh, this vision of the Lord. He is high and lifted up. It's a vision of the temple and his robe is filling the whole temple. And you remember Isaiah's response, woe is me, I'm done for. He's dead. That's his response to, 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 to this vision of the Lord. Of course, the Lord has mercy on him, cleanses him, and sends Isaiah out into his ministry. In, in John chapter 12 and verse 41, John tells us that what Isaiah was seeing there was a vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah saw his glory, Jesus' glory, the pre-incarnate glory of the Son of God. But in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to lay eyes upon him, he looks just like a man. No particular beauty, Isaiah says, that we would be drawn to him. When the eternal Son was conceived of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he took to himself a human nature. The person of the eternal Son therefore possesses two natures, divine nature and a human nature, and they are united in the one person of the Son. He is truly God and he is truly man. Now, there's nothing else in creation that you're going to compare this to. You're not going to draw this on a piece of paper or paint it. Because nothing else possesses two natures in this way. To have one person with two natures. We can describe this. We can use this language. I think it's true and accurate. But eventually, our finite brains are going to come up against their limits. And we are going to have to acknowledge there's a mystery to this, how it is that the eternal Son of God can be both truly God and truly man, possessing two natures in his one person. How it is he can simultaneously, through his human nature, be born to the Virgin Mary and have the weakness of a baby 
And yet simultaneously, the person of the Son in and through his divine nature is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And yet this is what is necessary to affirm if the scriptures are true and are speaking God's truth to us. And the reason that he came and took flesh to himself in this way is that he came to fulfill obligations concerning his office as mediator. So in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, we're told there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The Son of God came, took flesh to himself in order to secure salvation, to be the mediator between the triune God and man. Before the foundations of the world, God elected a people, and it was given to the Son that he would come and he would redeem those people. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one whom the entire Old Testament is looking ahead to and promising, all the way from back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You remember, the fall has occurred, death enters into the world, God is cursing man, he is cursing Satan, he is pronouncing a curse upon creation, and in the midst of it, in Genesis 3.15, he holds out hope that there will be an, an offspring from a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that promise is then developed all throughout the Old Testament, and it's ultimately fulfilled in the Son of God who came to be the offspring of the woman and who would conquer the curse and conquer Satan and redeem human beings out from under the curse of death. And taking on human flesh was a necessary part of the Son's work as Redeemer, as Mediator. He came to be that last Adam. Hebrews 2, 17 tells us, Therefore, he, the Son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be truly man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It was necessary to take flesh to fulfill part of his obligations as mediator. This office of mediator has often been described as a threefold office. That is, there are three aspects to this office, to this work. We've talked of this before, but he is prophet, priest, and king. This threefold office of mediator. He is prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there were three separate offices. You had prophets, priests, and kings. And they all served their own purpose under the Mosaic Covenant. But they also served as types, pictures, pointing ahead to what the Messiah would do. Pointing ahead to who the Messiah would be. And so indeed, Jesus is our great prophet to begin with. If you think of prophets in the Old Testament, they came and they declared, thus says the Lord. And then they would declare what it was that God had told them. They taught the people. They, we often find them rebuking the people or calling them back to the old covenant that God had struck with them. Sometimes they're blessing people. They're instructing. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses, he foretold of an even greater prophet that would come after him who would have an even greater authority. If you think of Moses, how large of a figure he is in the Old Testament, he speaks of one greater than him to come. And then all the way back when we started this series, I mentioned this. Here we have in Matthew chapter, the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, Jesus, like Moses, now ascends a mountain and then instructs the people in, among other things, the law of God. And yet Jesus, as he's teaching, he doesn't declare, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't use that prophetic wording. Rather, he says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He is speaking, again, another example, as one possessing authority. Jesus is our great prophet. In fact, as we read earlier from John 1, he is the word. Who was it that Moses spoke with? Who was it that gave Moses instruction? Whose word did the prophets of old speak? Who was it that gave the commission to Isaiah? It was the eternal word, the eternal son, the word who was with God and the word who was God. And now he has come in the flesh and he has clarified his word to us. Moreover, we know after his ascension, he rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father's right hand. He has, by his eternal spirit, inspired the New Testament scriptures. And so we have the authoritative word of God that is the word of Christ to us. He is the authoritative prophet. And as we think about churches and as we think today about sending out many of you, some of you, to plant this church in Regina... I cannot stress, we cannot stress enough how important it is to remember always that Christ rules his church by his word and his spirit. All too easily, we can begin to set aside his word. We can begin to set aside the things that he commands. We are tempted to believe what we want to believe. We are tempted to act in, according with, in accordance with what we think is appropriate. But again, it is Christ that sets the agenda. His word is the authority. He is the head of the church. And we need to ever be on guard against pragmatism. When he gives us commands, it is for our own good and for the good of the church. So even as we think about all the things he has instructed us throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount here, we are to be those who pay careful attention to what he has said, seeking to submit ourselves to the word that he has given to us. And so let us always, with God's help, by his grace, measure our doctrine and our practice by his word. He is the prophet, and so it is to him that we ultimately are to listen. And so we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus engaged in his in the prophetic function of his office of mediator. 
But we also see his kingly function as well. Again, if you think back to the Old Testament, the kingly office clearly pointed ahead to the great king who would come. There's kingly language even as we think about Adam, but we know how that ended and the fall enters in. Think of the kings that were given to the nation of Israel. Psalm 2 speaks of the king, the Lord's anointed, who would be God's answer to the nations and their mocking and their rebellion against God. The nations of the earth are called to kings of the earth and all to, to kiss the son, lest he be angry forever. And there's a blessing there for all who do. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is told that one of his sons, a son who would be faithful, would sit on his throne forever. And the eternal Son of God came to be born of a woman, born in the line of David. And if we think back again, even in Matthew, when Matthew opens his gospel, he does so with a genealogy, everybody's favorite, and that genealogy expresses, uh, places importance upon two key figures. One of them is Abraham, who received this promise that through one of his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the other person who is placed, uh, importance is placed upon in the genealogy is David. And then we're told, of course, that Jesus is born in the line of David. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist begins preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The promises and the hopes of the Old Testament were coming to fulfillment. The kingdom was coming, which meant the king was coming. And then Jesus, after being baptized by John the Baptist, likewise began preaching as John did, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. And Jesus, the Messiah, the King, began calling men and women to himself. He is the King. He is the one that they were to follow, that they might, they might be part of his heavenly kingdom. And then as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we see the kingdom mentioned a number of times. This kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Jesus begins teaching the character of kingdom citizens in the Beatitudes. He declares to us who it is that has the right to enter into the kingdom. What they will be characterized by. He gives the charter for those kingdom citizens as he instructs us about the nature of true righteousness. Moreover, as we saw earlier, he has also revealed that he is the one who will execute divine judgment. He is the king who says who has the right to enter and to determine who those will be who will be eternally banished. As he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he might have appeared to some unimpressive as he sat there in what is often called his state of humiliation. But upon his resurrection... And then his ascension, he is the exalted king, unmistakably glorious. And when he pronounces those judgments he said he will make, they will be final. 
Think ahead to the book of Revelation and the depictions we have there of the Son when he returns. They are a return in glory. There is no question about who he is or of his greatness. He is unmistakably glorious. His judgment will be final. And his benevolent rule over those he has redeemed will also be final and eternal. The Lord Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, his office of mediator also includes his priestly function. If you think of the Old Testament priests, his office of mediator includes, or sorry, if you think of the Old Testament priests, like the kings and like the prophets, they serve their own function under the Old Covenant. They mediated between God and the covenant people of Israel. But their work also typified what needed to happen on a much grander level if any man or woman was to be eternally forgiven of their sins and have their consciences truly cleansed. And while the Sermon on the Mount, as we've gone through it, it doesn't say much about Christ's priestly work specifically, the Gospel of Matthew on the whole, and if we were going through all of it, we would see this more, but the, go- the Gospel of Matthew on the whole is not silent about this. Back in chapter 1 and verse 21, when the angel appeared to Joseph and said that Mary was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he also says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus declared that he, the Son of Man, had authority on earth to forgive sins. And since that's a bold claim of authority, he then proved his point by raising this paralytic and healing him. Then in chapter 26, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he understands there what lays before him. That he is about to drink this cup that he speaks of. And he understands that this cup is nothing less than the cup of God's wrath for sin. Which is an Old Testament analogy. We find it in Ezekiel for sure. This cup of wrath. This is what Jesus went on to face when he had the Lord's Supper prior to praying in Gethsemane. He spoke of the blood of the new covenant the blood that would bring about the forgiveness of sins. And of course, in chapter 27 of Matthew, we find there the eternal Son of God, mystery of mysteries, offers his own sinless body to be crucified on behalf of those he came to save. The Son dies in and through his human nature. The great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not offer animals, but he offered his own self, his own perfect self as the greater Lamb of God, as a substitute for sinners, that God's wrath might pass over those he died for, those who are under his blood. And as he did this, Matthew tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two miraculously from top to bottom. The old covenant 
was no more. That which the temple and all those sacrifices were foreshadowing and ultimately pointing to had come and a greater sacrifice had been offered and, and, and forgiveness of sins, eternally so, had been purchased by the single offering of Jesus. And then he is laid in the grave, but then in chapter 28, we read of his resurrection, in which Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave. And of course, not to be forgotten, later in the chapter, he then ascends to heaven, where the book of Hebrews tells us that he continues to intercede on behalf of all those for whom he died, where he continues in his priestly role, mediating for those he died for ensuring that his people will indeed be saved to the uttermost, that through, ensuring that through his spirit, all the benefits that he has secured, all of the saving blessings that he has secured in his act of redemption will be applied, will be given to his people, to all who believe in him. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that this death and burial and resurrection of Christ, which is in accordance with Scripture, is indeed of first importance. It is, he calls it the gospel. It is the good news he would remind you of. And it is what he proclaims as of first importance. And this is what we have as a church, as churches. The good news that though this world is indeed fallen, though every man, woman, and child is a sinner condemned under God's holy wrath as violators of his laws, as those who've inherited the guilt of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam, though this be our condition, though we have sinned grievously against God, fallen woefully short of his glory, though we deserve, therefore, God's wrath against us for our sins, there is gracious pardon, and it comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who took to himself flesh, lived a perfect life, and then offered himself on behalf of sinners. It's the only possible way that anyone could be forgiven. There is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. And so we call people to repent of their sin and to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We warn of judgment that is to come. And we don't just warn of that. We don't just condemn people for being sinful. But we also then offer to them God's solution, the only solution to sin, forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that is received through no works and efforts of our own, but solely through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, is he worthy to be trusted? Does he have the ability to save? Does he have the authority to save? He does. He will not fail. Obviously, as we think of the Sermon on the Mount and the crowds and they're astonished at his authority, all of this is not right there in this text. But this is the authority of the one that they were just, they were glimpsing a small part of. 
This is why he was able to say and teach the things he said without it being utter blasphemy. And so while in one sense we go our separate ways and head into new chapters, whatever those might be, our two churches have a clear call to continue to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. The one with all authority and the only one in whom there is salvation, the forgiveness of sins. The one who will yet return to bring judgment and to save his people and to dwell eternally in the new heavens and new earth. The Gospel of Matthew ends with what is often called the Great Commission. And I want to read this for us. Our Lord Jesus says, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then comes the promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks. There's little else we can do. We, we confess we are sinful, and we thank you that you are merciful in Christ. We thank you that we can have great hope, a secure hope, knowing that the man Jesus was no, is no ordinary man. but is your Son. Our Heavenly Father, we, we pray to you in his name. We have no right to come to you on our own, in our sinfulness. We come and we come boldly because we do have a great high priest who has offered himself once for all. The sacrifice that doesn't just cleanse in some external ritual way, but actually cleanses us from our sin. We give you praise and thanks for this wonderful news and the fact that this is a gift of grace to sinners. Father, I pray that you would help us to not lose sight of the greatness of who you are, that we would proclaim your goodness to those around us, that we would not be ashamed that we would not be afraid to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. That we would receive your promises you've made to those who trust in Christ by faith. That you would strengthen that faith with re these reminders of who you are, our triune God. We are very weak and we need your help. We need these reminders of your your. your your faithfulness constantly and continually. And so we thank you for your word. We pray, I pray that you would encourage each person that is here. In the name of Jesus, amen.